A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Hello and welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. My name is Paul Furlong, Creative Director at Opus Media, and I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you know the power of storytelling. And I want you to bring that power to your own writing with Roger Shulman at thewritercoach.com. Roger's unique coaching method connects your personal story to whatever you're writing, giving it heart and depth. The result, your presentation, website copy, keynote address or screenplay becomes compelling, entertaining and persuasive. Roger is the winner of a British Academy Award and nominee for the Oscar and the Emmy. So go to thewritercoach.com and schedule a free discovery session. Let Roger bring the Hollywood to your writing. Today's guest is Finbar Healy, the world's finest comedian known to only those in Newcastle and the surrounding areas and sometimes not even there. He's also an actor who can't sing, a dancer who can't dance and a voiceover artist as long as a North East accent is required as other accents aren't available. Finn, I can't believe you made me read that out, but welcome to the show. The reason I made you read it, Paul, is because what I know of you so far is that there was two men talking in a car park, and one of them looked bored out of his mind. You would be the other one. So I thought it might be best to just uh, give you give you something notable about myself, you know? Well, thank you very much for that. So why don't you, um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, and, uh, and maybe... Uh, be a little less self-deprecating yeah absolutely well i've never said anything positive about myself but whoever does you know it doesn't mean we're not positive and upbeat anyway you know that's that's the art of storytelling about oneself is it has to be negative in regards to oneself and then everyone else gets a positive that's why i do what i do so I, i'm a comedian uh, predominantly, I, I work on the after-dinner circuit. I, uh, I also grace plenty of the theatre stages around the UK. Um, I, I love what I do. That's resulted in me becoming an actor, which is what I always wanted to do initially. The reason I became a comedian was because my dad was a comedian. 
and uh, I'm one of four. And my brothers, two brothers, were fantastic musicians. And my dad was a musician as well as a comedian. So obviously he had the actor and comedian what can sing, and I'm the actor and comedian what can't sing element. Uh, so because my brothers were fantastic musicians, I had to do something to remain my dad's favorite. So what I did was become a comedian. So that's why I did that, and because I absolutely love it. I, I like to possess things in life whenever I say I can pay my bills, etc. I like to say that laughter paid for them. You know, that's that's a wonderful thing to be able to say about what you do. Uh, the acting, I absolutely love, although I seem to have been generally typecast at present. The last few roles I've done, I've, I've done to dress. Uh, it always seems to be a phone call. Finbar, I've got a wonderful job for you. Here's the here's the breakdown of what's about to happen. And by the way, you'll be wearing a dress and a wig. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that seems to be my thing. I'm a bit of a dame. Um, so I, I do pantomime on an annual basis as well. Last year I was at Gateshead Stadium uh, up, up in the northeast. Um, and previous to that was a concert empire. Um, and that's a little bit about me, really. Uh, the voiceover artist thing is probably a fabrication unless someone wants to hire me to do so, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you for that. Although the film that we did together, um, I don't think I dressed you up in uh, in a dress. That's a good point. Luckily, I wasn't. That time, that was one of my only times on screen and stage as a man, which was a really welcome feeling. <laughs> I'm glad. So um, how did you learn to tell stories? That, you see that within itself is a is a difficult conversation, Paul, because it under it it, it it's got to be in a certain context. So, for example, I always knew I had an ability for storytelling from the from the tender age of being a child. I, I, I always stood up and would would tell stories through the medium of song, even though, as you heard earlier, I can't sing. So that was a bit unbearable for my family at family parties, um, but also. I would. I, I've always been a keen reader, and getting lost in novels. I do believe that getting lost into words is more powerful than any anything could ever be. So, for example, if I read a script for a piece of work that somebody's asking me to do, I I get so lost in the script that it paints the pictures. The words paint the picture. I shut my eyes and see it before. Um, so I, but that always makes me a tricky customer because then I have this vision of what the words are. So whenever the director's vision is different, I'm always like, oh, I saw it so differently. I'm so disappointed now. <laughs> but um, so storytelling has been a, a, a part of my life forever. I, I, and, you know, with the speaking and listening tasks in English, I was unfortunate enough that I, did, I didn't go to a school that had drama which is a huge, huge shame for me because it's always been the biggest cornerstone in my life. Uh, so the best I had was speaking and listening and, and linguistics at school. And I always exceeded myself in that, whether, whether it be because grammatically I couldn't put what was in my head onto the paper, but I could always act out a story better than I could write one myself. Because I do that, I get wonderful ideas, and then I go, I must write that down. As soon as I go to write it down, I go, that looks nothing like what I've just seen. So I don't know whether you can say I'm kind of a, a fantasy storyteller where I draw all the words in my head, but that would be my best association as to... How it, how it works. I'd like to have 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 a muse 
who follows me around with a pen and paper so I can just spurt out all of my feelings all of the time and they can uh, they can write my story. But no one would read it anyway, unless we're in Newcastle or the surrounding areas, or even if they knew me there anyway. So when you're putting your stories together, be it a story that you're maybe going to act out and you're, you're planning how you're going to portray it or the stories that you're telling from stage when you're, when you're performing your stand-up, what ingredients do you make sure are included within that story? There's, a, there's no key ingredients. The, the main ingredient that I like to refer to is self-association. So when it comes to the idea of writing a joke or even to re- reword something that I previously looked at, I'll always uh, say, for example, I've experienced a situation in life which I, I then want to turn into a joke. I've even heard it from a friend, a situation that then I see great bones in for hilarity. I'll still associate it to myself because people find it a lot easier to laugh at the comedian who stood in front of them than than somebody else who they don't know who you're referring to in the story. So I, I always like to make it about myself where possible. I mean, if I'm telling a joke about two priests in Ireland, I can't really refer to myself because I'm stood on a stage in front of people and uh, they know I'm not a priest because I haven't got the collar on. So yeah. Key ingredient, self-association. I know that sounds mad, and it sounds self-absorbed, but it's not. It's actually in light of humour, I think, to refer to yourself. So, so for example, if a, it, that works with everything. If you were selling something, it works with selling something. If you tell stories that you've heard that might be relatable to a client, for example, that you were dealing with, if you made that story about yourself, it would make it a lot more relatable than if you go, oh, I had this friend what this happened to then that's that's not as relatable as somebody um i also think there just has to be a lot of substance in there that draws you in um a lot a, a lot you know uh, something that ha- it captures interest it can't it can't just be a flat no pu- the punchline is irrelevant if the story is right that's how I feel. I feel if the story grips you, then the punchline of the story, even if it doesn't have a punchline, if it's not a joke, for example, I'm referring to it such as a joke, but I think the story has to be gripping from start to finish, regardless of the outcome. Because if you've lost people three minutes in and it's seven minutes, then it's going to be a long time. So how, how do you grab people at the beginning of the story? What What is it that you use to kind of grab them at the start? And, and how do you hold their attention throughout the story? Usually a swear word or two. No, I'm only trying that's up to. Um, I think the way I would grip somebody in is is to create a picture in the first instance. I think to, to create a picture as to what you're leading to, then it's almost like you've created a synopsis of what you're about to say with, with the interesting bits. So start with the interest, and then it, you've got to kind of associate that in later on, but you can tail off as long as the interest is there at first. It's hard when you're not putting it to context to answer, you know, that's the only thing. When I'm not putting a context in, if you gave me a scenario, I would try and try and portray it to you, but equally without a scenario. Well, with a scenario, I probably couldn't do it anyway, so I don't know why I'm saying it. Fair enough. And so um, maybe this is difficult to, to portray with without a scenario as well, but once you've got kind of your key ingredients, you've got the picture of uh, what you're trying to put, paint in the the mind of the the listeners and you've got the kind of the the different context that you're trying to get in to the to the story is there a way that you structure your story 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the start, and then you go to the middle, and then after the middle, you go straight to the end. It works every time, Paul. Works every time. Thank you. <laughs> no, so it, 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 it's it, as I say, it's really hard without context as to how to formulate a story. So, say for example, I wanted to talk about my experience of going to the pub in COVID nineteen. So when the pubs are freshly open, uh, and the, the the context is completely different, and also the situation we put ourselves in is not not the same. So I would always I would always try and paint a picture of what happened if I was to tell this story to you, for example. So I would say, I'd ask my wife permission. She said no, but I decided to go anyway. So off I go on my way to the pub in a taxi with a cellophane curtain in the front. I'm speaking to the man and he can't hear a word I'm saying because I've got a mask on and there's sellotape. I've gone wrong there already. You see, this is why I need to spew it out. There's a mask on and there's cellophane shrouding the front before me. I say, hello, mate, have you been busy? And he sits there unassumedly and doesn't listen to a word I'm saying because, as I say, the mask and the cellophane combination is irrelevant in the circumstance because one could not just hear what he is saying. I even went into old English there, you know. So I haven't even mentioned the pub yet. You don't even know where the story's going. But I like to paint this visual picture because everybody can associate to it as well because if you've gone to the pub in the back of a cellophane taxi, you'll go, I know exactly what he's saying. Did that answer your question or did I just do a politician's answer that just went round it? <laughs> that was a great answer and it leads me nicely on to the next question, which which brings me back to something that you mentioned earlier on about kind of the use of words and the, the great use of language that you use in there even when you went into your old English. Um, how important is language to to comedy and, and how, how important is language to, the, to, to storytelling in general, would you say? Oh, it's really important. I find when I'm telling jokes in England, to use the English language is really beneficial. Um, when I'm in Spain, I'll, I'll try and do it in Spanish, but then I'll just revert back to English and then I'll laugh. So it, it's dead important. I don't know what I've let myself in for here, Finn. This... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only joking, of course. No, language is really important. I think, I think great. as I say... As I've referred back to from the start, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think I've referred to the point of painting a really strong picture and languages to do that. I mean, if I if I was to write something, I'd always get a thesaurus out and see if I can make it that little bit more interesting. You know, like, what have I said? I've said big. Is there any better word than big? What's that thesaurus? Colossal. Wonderful. Much bigger picture. You see, pun intended there. But um, no, I think I think language is is extremely important, and I think also when I'm telling a story, if it's a personal exercise, so between me and one other person, I will always draw in the character that I see before me in you, so I will associate myself to you, um, and I will I will make I will try and plug it so that you know you're my captive audience. So I need to tell a story that's on your level to your character. And I would mimic you and your reactions to the story to gauge where I can go next or how far I can go. And I think that that's created by... So I've reverted away from, is language important to a story? And said, body language 
as well, which is obviously a different interpretation of language altogether, is extremely vital in storytelling as well. Obviously not if you're writing a novel, because you can't see these characters in front of you, and body language is difficult to read from a, a non-existent character. But I do, I do think all elements of language are vital, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And I imagine that's quite difficult when you're on stage delivering your, uh, your stand-up. If you've got body language that's different in in a whole multitude of people, it's it's quite fairly easy at the moment. We're on Skype; we can see each other. You can read my body language; I can read yours. Yeah. But if you've got a room of, of five hundred people and you, you've got different people reacting differently, how how do you how do you cope with that? It's, it's a little bit different when you're on stage in front of so many people because you can't read the body language because the lights are so blinding in your face you can't even tell anyone's there, so you have nothing to go off really. But um. What I do, what I do find is that I'm more receptive to negative body language, as any comedian would probably tell you. So you, you can generally see if somebody's having a good time, and the one person who isn't is always the most fun for you and the least fun for them. Um, so I don't, I, I don't really need to gauge it from them. It, it's less body language than it is reaction. It, it's, it's, it's a collective of body language is reaction to me. That's the way I look at it. So if you've, if you've got one person, you're reading their body language. If you've got a hundred people, you're reading their reaction. So then that one person who's not enjoying themselves and 99 people who are, then it means it's just wonderful because you now know that those 99 people who are enjoying themselves are going to enjoy themselves at this man or woman's expense as well. So there's there's been a, a number of studies about comedians needing less social approval than kind of the average member of society. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of ties into that. Have you found that that's been the case for you, um, that you find that you need less social approval? 100%, but... It's it, it's not something that you want because obviously you do want social approval in what we do because laughter is what fuels us and laughter is what exceeds our excels our career. So you've got an artist who does one picture, sells that picture, the next picture's worth a little bit more. And it's the same context with a comedian. The more people that laugh, the more people that want you and the more work that you get. But social approval is something that I've, I've never required. I, I'm very much, uh, take me as I am, this is who I am. If you like me, you do, that's wonderful. If you, if you don't like me, I'm not going to change to make you like me. That's, that's not who, who I am as a character. But with that, I think it's also something that isn't, it's not the way you are at the start. I think you're, when, you're very, when you start out, you do need that social approval because you need to be told that you're good to continue. But really, the best advice I ever got was off my dad. And my dad said to me, he said, son, because I used to always, it was not so much social approval. I always required his approval. And I always used to say, Dad, I'm doing really well. I've, I've done five gigs now, and all five of them have been a rowing success. He says, yeah, let me stop you there, son. He says, that's all wonderful, and I'm really glad you're doing well, but you're not a real comedian until you go on that stage and you die on your ass. Apologies for my French. Um, unless you die on your ass. Uh, and then that's not all. You have to go and get out of bed the next day, go back on the stage in front of the exact same number of people and die again. And then once you've done that, if you can get back on that stage and do it again, then you're a comedian. And I hold that to me, and luckily I've done that. So 
I must now be a comedian because I've died loads of times. No, it's, it's only been a handful. But uh, it's that that's what it is. It's kind of you can't require social approval because when you do an amazing gig, you drive home and you're on top of the world, the adrenaline is the most amazing drug in the, in the human body. Uh, I feel absolutely remarkable when I'm going home. But when I have a bad gig, there's no feeling that could compare. It's, it's a bit like gambling. If you win loads of money, you feel great, but then you spend that money and it doesn't exist anymore. And if you lose a fortune, you can't afford to lose, and then you can't eat for months. It feels like it never goes away. It's a bit like that, but from a comedic perspective, you fuel off all the good ones. But when you have a bad ones, the good ones never existed. So with that that um, lack of need for that social approval or that, that less need for social approval, how does that affect, do you think, um, getting the audience on your side in terms of developing that empathy and that connection between you and the audience. I've always been a relatable guy. I, I, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I, I'm, I'm there, and I'm once I'm there to tell jokes. I'm there for everybody to see, and I'm there for everybody to relate to, and everybody to give their time to. They, they these wonderful people are paying money to come and see me, so I'm there to give them everything they need. So. I, that will not even need want hopefully um obviously with a few restrictions i mean i'm only going to tell them jokes nothing more you know but um with that being said i think i think empathy is something that people give you from the outset regardless until you until you've lost their interest if you lose the interest, then that empathy is no longer there. That relatability is no longer there. No, no element of what you can do can rescue it once you've lost them. So you have to win them. And I think the best way to win them in the first instance is much like what I did there, although that was very gentle, what I said to you at the very start of this podcast. I, I could have been a lot less gentle, but I, I hadn't asked you a disclaimer on how one should speak, you know, whether one could use words of, certain specific kinds of language that paint a very negative picture. But um, with that being said, I think if you if you bring that association and go, go straight for the people who are there, the people who everybody knows, and make a few jokes about them, but lighthearted, not, not something that's going to make someone cry and go home. That's not what you want. I'm not that guy. I'm not an aggressive comedian. I'm not particularly blue. I can be clean as a whistle if necessary. Um so a bit of a bit of positive association with people in the room, get them all going, get everybody interested, and see where we go from there. Because I think you've got them in once you once you they know you're not just reading from a script and you're actually being yourself. You know. Yeah, I think I think that, that that's really interesting and and really good advice about that kind of building that instant rapport and building that instant instant empathy. So within within comedy, often misdirection is is used to build curiosity and anticipation and often that's used within storytelling as well so uh, is misdirection part of your style of comedy yeah i involve misdirection but i also uh, i also sub- uh, subconsciously add misdirection by missing key elements of the story out so that when I come back to it, they go, ah, oh, well, of course, that's hilarious because there was made no mention of what was previously there. Like, so, for example, a joke that you would never assume the punchline. I will, I'll give you it. I was in the bank the other day and uh, there was two people in front of me in the queue. And uh, a guy come in, he had a mask and a shotgun and he robbed the bank. And as the cashier was handing the money across, 
to the butt rubber. She knocked the mask slightly askew off his face. So he corrected the mask and he turned to the guy too in front of me and he says, did you see my face? He says, I did, yeah. <laughs> Bang, shoots him dead on the floor. Well, he goes to the guy, one in front of me, he says, did you see my face? He says, I did, yeah. <laughs> Bang, shoots him dead on the floor. Well, by this point, Paul, I'm starting to get the hang of this. He says, did you see my face? I says, no, but my wife did. So the, the mere mention of my wife not being there meant that you had no idea that that punchline was coming, but it still made sense, and it's, uh, I hope she's not listening. Love you, darling. <laughs> so what what is it about misdirection, do you think, that works so well to build the curiosity and the anticipation? I think misdirection is great because if you're leading someone one way and they're all they get all comfortable going that way, don't they? So you're a fork in the road and you don't have a map and you take the left and you're just tootling along driving, I'm happy, I'm happy, and you get six miles up the road and you realise you should have gone right. It creates a complete... Well, that doesn't create curiosity. I think that it, that story really didn't make sense of the statement I'm making because if you go six miles the wrong way, you're going to have to go six miles back and then go the right way. So that'll create curiosity, not curiosity. I, I got the F and the C mixed up there, sorry. But um, no, but it is right, though. I think if you go that way, though, you will be seeing everything that is around you and you're... It'll make, you, it'll make you nice and comfortable because you feel like you're going the right way. But then you go, oh, geez, I was meant to go the other way. So then that that's the curiosity and normality that you've created going in that specific direction has just been you turned on you because the, 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 the metaphor does make sense, actually, now I think about it. Because if you were in a car, you'd have to do a U-turn to go back and go the right way. So... I think that's kind of the way that life is. I'm I'm one of them for absurdist comedy. I flipping love it. I can't do it, but I do love it. It's just things that make absolutely no sense and have no no direction at all sometimes. And then they bring you to this place of just sheer hilarity when they when they come in and they it's just completely not what you were expecting. You know, I love that. I do love that. I love being led the wrong way and jumping in with something completely random because that's me that's me in day-to-day -day life like but it's not me on stage so much so the, the kind of the opposite of misdirection can sometimes work really really well as well where you know the punchline really early on and yeah that kind of lead, leads you on and everyone's kind of laughing right at the beginning and you know it's coming and that that i think um uh faulty towers does that really quite well sometimes and then faulty towers can do the misdirection really well as well so why do you think knowing the punchline really early on works so well as well because i think losing anticipation is exciting as well isn't it it's kind of like even if it, that's the same as if someone tells you a joke and you can see the punchline from a mile away you laugh at a point in a joke when no one else is laughing, that feels great to people, doesn't it? Because you're, you're, you're laughing away to yourself and everybody going, what he's laughing at. What they don't realise is you're a mile ahead of them. And that you do get those kind of people as well, like who, who laugh at the most absurd times. And then that creates a laughter rippling through the room of other people who then aren't even laughing because of where the story's going. They're laughing because this person's laughing. And it's complete. It's because laughter is a contagious thing. And, and that, regardless, if you can create a story that creates 
what would be a contagious laughter. That that that's a reward within within itself. But you just need someone what gets it first, though. You can't you can't you can't just breed them every day. And where between kind of the 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 misdirection and the the early punchline where people get it really early on, where would you say your comedy fits in there, or is it a mix? Ah, you see, you know how I would describe myself, which seems like the most relevant uh, relevant statement for the for the purpose of this podcast is i would call myself an old-fashioned storytelling storytelling comedian that that is me i would i would generally i generally tell long-winded stories but i also put a lot of punchlines in them but i also particularly like jokes that don't have very strong punchlines but you keep someone for ages because that within itself is funny so even if you're telling a really weak joke but you're dragging it out for five minutes, and I will—I'll do this. I, I've got a couple of them that I particularly use when I'm on stage, where I'll draw out five minutes of this joke, and I'll get the punchline, and it's what you call a groaner. It makes people groan when you get the punchline. But throughout the joke, I'll be going, "Stay with us. This is a long one, right?" So there was there was this guy starting a job as a zookeeper, and blah blah blah, and you just keep going on and on and on. But people start finding it funny because you're going on for so long. And then when the punchline comes, the joke hasn't, the punchline's not even funny to the joke, but they've laughed so much throughout the joke because I'm, I'm, I'm keeping them on tender hooks throughout of it. That it really works lovely as well. Nice. I like that. I, I think I told you that particular joke I'm referring to as well. Once upon a time. I remember that one. So um, all, all of these stories that you, that you tell on stage, how, how do you collect them? Do you, do you make them up? Do you have uh, do you have a really good memory? Do you do you have a book of stories? Uh, how, how do you how do you have them all in your in your collection? So it's accumulative over years. So I start you start out with a weak set of stories, and then you get some strong ones, and you add them in. You I write them, I write them, I adapt them, I change them over time. Some of them I don't change. Like uh, there's a particular one. Well, um, uh, this one my wife hates, and uh, so does the general public nowadays. So I've taken it out. I've taken it out, but it was. I got, so it's a really, really long joke where loads of different things happen. There's about ten punchlines, but one of the punchlines in it was uh, I'd just been pulled over by the police, and uh, there's a, there's an Alsatian dog in the back. And uh, I punched the Alsatian dog. It was lucky that he was in the back there. And the policeman says, I was going to do you for speeding, but now I'm going to do you for animal cruelty as well. I says, you punch that dog if you'd known what he'd done. He says, what's he done? I says, he's just eaten my tax disc. But with that being said, times have changed. Tax discs don't exist anymore. So people don't find that funny when you're telling it to a 20-year-old who's never seen a tax disc in his life. So I, I believe... Adaption over time is something that I do with everything. That that one I couldn't adapt because he couldn't eat my tax receipt from the internet, could he? So it just don't work anymore. So it just goes to the curb. But uh, yeah, so accumulatively, I've added loads and loads of stuff in there. Uh, over the years but I've got a good memory that's me with the acting side the way I trained myself to act because uh, I'm self-taught in everything I do I didn't 
go to drama school or anything like that. And I, I pride myself on that a little bit. And that's why I love when I get good jobs and things. And I'm like, I've really earned this because I've literally self-taught myself comedy, self-taught. Well, I say self-taught comedy. I think that's a bit, that's underselling my dad's participation in my comedy career because obviously my dad was a comedian. So I've spent my entire life observing comedy. So, but I've learned from watching. Um, but the acting, totally self-taught, but I, I love it, and I've had good feedback. Hopefully people do enjoy it, and I, I do. I, I get really good gratification from the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the stage with these people from Lambda and from Rada and who have had these wonderful, wonderful, uh, and I, I, I don't get me wrong, I'm jealous. I wish I'd had that kind of opportunity, but also I'm like, well, this is how I, I, I learned by watching. And I've always been that guy who learns by watching people. And the same with remembering things. I've always remembered things. So where the best way to say it is when I read my kids' story, bedtime story every night, I'll only ever use the book twice. I use the book twice. And then after that, I know the book forever. So like, if you want to know we're going on a bear hunt, we're going to catch a big one. I'm not scared. I could do it all for you right now. <laughs> you know, the like, so it's, it's a good way of showing you that, yeah, like memories really, really strong. And hopefully that's my only tool I've got. So I don't lose it. And so when you're, when you've got your story, you've collected the story and you're working out how to kind of turn that into your, your, your joke and, and add your jokes in and, and kind of pepper it throughout. Do you write that down in its entirety? kind of word for word in so say for example a particular situation has befaced me and i believe that it would be turned into a good joke i will write the entire situation down i bring it down a little further and crumble it down and crumble it down and then i'll have to like it takes ages because then i'll ring somebody and i'll say i've just witnessed their good joke and pretend it took me no time at all but actually i've been sat for ages breaking it down and making sure that it's funny and i'll tell them it and they go that's rubbish that thing and then i have to start again and word it in a way that would be funny so you've spent all this time thinking about the the situation you've written it down you've re rewritten it you've told it to a few people to practice you've done your kind of your, your, your yeah. practice nights in the the comedy cellar somewhere you've then been on stage and you've delivered it for the first time and then you've done your tour around the uk and you're delivering it for the millionth time that you've ever delivered it yeah how do you make sure that on the millionth time it sounds like the first time you've ever delivered that story because you've still got to have full faith in it you have to have full faith in it if you lose faith in it and you feel as so this is what i'm saying I'm, I'm mentioning jokes from the past that have been written out that's it i could have told that joke a million times and had a laugh and then one time and it doesn't work and it doesn't get to the audience that's the one time you know it's played its part and it's it's done so much like anything store stories have to be disposable if they don't travel with the time then they, they need to be need to be reworked and then if that doesn't work then they, they they get shelved and just end up being one for the memory bank my dad was a wonderful example of that as well like my, my dad could tell the same joke over and over again and no one would ever laugh any less and i would hope that people would say the same thing about me when i'm gone as well you know like no matter how many times i, I tell a joke 
it's still funny telling it. But if they don't, they go, I think I was good the first time, to, 10 times I saw him, but on the 11th, he was rubbish. That's the one they remember. They'll always remember the 11th. They never remember the 10th. So it's really important to just stay fresh and keep the stories relevant, but also keep people's attention with them. And you've got to have that faith in yourself and the faith in the story that you're telling. Because if you don't believe in that story you're telling, then people will see straight to you and have no interest. And so you've got all these stories that you've planned and prepared and practiced and told these many, many, many times. But then sometimes you might have someone heckle. Yes. Or you need to have that really quick-witted instant response. Yeah. How do you make sure that you're ready for that instant response? I generally just go home and cry if someone shouts at me. I don't, I don't respond. I'm not quick with it. No, um, it just, it, 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 that's the thing. You have to gauge the people that you can see. So once you can see everybody, you've already drawn association with everybody and you've already thought of the relevant things to say. So, for example, if there's a, a the easy thing is a reference point of a guy who sat looking the other way from you with his head turned to you, talking to his pal, not listening to a word he's saying. Go home, mate. Do you want to tell you what back to it you know like just easy easy gentle things but then with that you can get a lot of, I mirror people as I said to you earlier I mirror people so the reaction that I would get from an audience is exactly the same level that I would give back to them if not a little notch higher just so they know oh I'm not going to mess with him again you know but I think I think also that's a it's a it's a bit of a difficult question to answer saying how do you create a heckle uh, how do you create a retort to a heckle from a storytelling perspective because the, the the response to a heckle would be an instant story created in your head so there's no structure there's no nothing you're you're literally thinking on your feet and going back with what you've got and because you can't have regimented regimented responses to hecklers you can't write down oh if a heckler says this to me then i'll say this to them because that's absolutely irrelevant you you can't gauge what somebody's going to say unless someone shouts yeah big nose you're ugly or something then i'm all right i've got that one covered because i'm big and ugly and i'm used to that one you know but um i think to say that there's any kind of structure to that kind of that kind of response it literally can be the first thing that comes in your mind and that might be rubbish and the heckler might get one up on you and then they're, they're the fan favourite, you know? But it, it's a risky take. So that's more about the what you're seeing, what you're viewing, the connection that you have with them already. And what you're hearing, what you're hearing. Yeah, absolutely. You have to draw association from every single part of it and then go for it. I'd love to, but the worst thing about me is I say my memory is the best thing about me and my best tool. But if you asked me to make reference to examples of heckles I've responded to, because by goodness, I've responded to a good few and had some, there was a particular gig that sticks out in my mind where I had this heckle from a group of ladies in the front row. And whatever I said to them got the biggest response ever. But I can't remember all of those off the cuff things that I say back to people. I remember all of my stories, but I can never remember that. I can only remember the reaction, you know? I'm sure they'd had a couple of them special chocolate brownies, those ones anyway. Amazing. So um, as well as um, all of the stand-up and the acting and the 
the voiceover and the dancing and, and everything else that we've discussed. Uh, dancing's a fabrication. I don't even dance. Well, I get asked to dance, but then I do the box step and that's as far as my reign will go. So as well as the box step, you're also a sales director of an energy brokerage. Yes, that's correct. How does comedy help you in, in the business world? Oh, it, it's absolutely tenfold. You know, when I when I was initially w- went into the world of business, um, the reason I'm here is because I need stability. I've got four children. Well, I've got three children and a fourth on the way within a week or two. Um, so I need I, I need I need that stability, which is which is heartbreaking for me because I watch all of my. But also at this time, it's been extremely helpful because I watch all of my friends who've taken that massive leap to become actors full time and comedians full time, and I've got loads of them who do it, and that was a huge leap. And now it's go work in Asda with all of what's going on in the world, which is extremely sad to see for me. But it worked wonderfully in business because from the very get go when I when I started in the industry people were saying you need to get the answers to these questions you need to say this say that and say the other and i went no i don't what are you talking about i'm the unmanageable man that's probably why i'm a sales director now because i don't have to answer to anybody anymore um except for the other people i have to answer to so that was a bit of a silly statement um but uh, so I said, no, I don't. I don't have to do it that way. I don't have to sound like a robot. I don't have to go. All right. So how many meters have we got? How many sites have we got? What's this? What's that? If I do that, the other person on the phone's going to hang up and say, I have no interest in talking to you. You're like a hundred other people I've spoken to. So instantly, I ring them up and I gauge them and I mirror their voices. If they're speaking in a high tone of voice, my voice goes a bit higher. If they're very loud, I'm very loud, which is very annoying for everybody who works around me. But um, then. I will talk to them about life, love, laughter, lockdown, everything. Um, and I, I'll create that rapport and, uh, you know, that relationship because it's all about relationships. It's not about uh, getting all the information you need in the first instance. It's about establishing a relationship, a connection. And then from that point when you've got that built, then you can drop the questions in, in between going, oh, hello, Pat, how's the wife and kids? Because you're at that stage. You, someone goes, hello, Pat, it's just Finn again. How are you doing? How's the wife and kids doing? Are they great? By the way, Pat, I didn't ask you, um, how, how many sites did you have again? All right, grand, not a bother at all. We'll have a little look at that for you if you want. Or if not, then we'll just speak again next week and I'll bore the life out of you then. You know, just something like that. And it's just, it's really, really gentle. And people really respond to you if you're friendly and relatable. And that's the point of everything I've said. Amazing. I bet you weren't expecting answers this long from us. <laughs> the answers have been brilliant. I really, really appreciate it. Um, however, I am aware of the time uh, that I've taken from you today. And so I would love to ask you just a few quick fire questions, if that's okay. So um, who do you think of when you hear the word story? And why do you think of that person? I mean, from an acting perspective, William Shakespeare, Samuel Beckett, and John Steinbeck, those three, I mean, and this is what we say, stories have to remain stable over time. And for them to have written their stories and for them to still be as prominent in modern days, absolutely baffling, stifling. Can you recommend any good books, websites, blogs, podcasts about storytelling that you may have read or may have studied? I don't. I don't study storytelling. I have to be perfectly honest. The only thing I, I see is of you guys doing your storytelling podcast. Other than that, as I say, it's just it's just self-taught. Everything's self-taught from what I do. And, uh, I mean, that's it, really. I don't have any more answer to give to that. Okay. 
and finally where can we find out more about you uh, where, where's your website um, and uh, if you're on any social media where can we find that this is a fun question because I'm 28 years old but I also have the technological ability of my gran who's 90 we'll call me gran techno but that's not because she's technologically advanced it's just because she takes no prisoners um, but you can find me on Facebook if you want to see loads of things that are completely irrelevant to, to me and post very infrequently because I'm too busy etching all of my jokes into a bit of slate with a rock. Um, but I'm Finbar Healy Comedy on there. Um, and then also I have a, a website. I think I do. Uh, uk. You want to see any of my jokes online, you won't because I've got, I've got four hours worth of video footage of my jokes that I didn't know how to edit and they're all sat on a laptop somewhere and haven't been edited so nobody can see it. So nobody can book me because they can't see me because they'll go, he's probably rubbish because he won't put anything online. But one day, one day when I get the editing capabilities, you will get to see me telling a joke on your screen, on YouTube. That's what I aspire to, being a YouTube sensation with 400 views in the last two years. It'd be wonderful. Brilliant, Finn. Listen, I really appreciate you spending the time with us today and sharing all of your uh, your knowledge and your experience with us. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. Uh, I wish I wish my knowledge came across a little bit more than my experience, but I've I've not really made any sense in anything I've said. So I'll just continue to talk nonsense until this call is signed off. Well, I think I think you have. Um, I appreciate that you've continued with the self-deprecation throughout, um, and um, we should uh, we should definitely do this again sometime soon. So thanks again, and uh, we'll catch up soon. It's not just self-deprecation. My wife and kids hate me as well. I'm, I'm sure that's not. I'm sure that's not Thanks true. So much. Um, and good, good luck with the uh, the in, incoming newborn. Thank you ever so much, Paul. Take care. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Rule the World. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you, and see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.